0: Hi, I'm Tom Flynn, and I'm Lori Feathers, and welcome to Lost in Redonda. Hi, Lori, how are you doing today?
1: Tom, I'm doing well. I'm um, looking forward to talking to you today about Muriel Sparks' The Bachelors, which is on our ticket for today and our ongoing muriel spark um project i guess this is what novel number four five
0: i believe it is number five we've had uh the comforters robert robinson uh, memento mori uh, the ballad of peckham rye and now the bachelors which puts us one away from um the prime as I keep referring to the prime of Miss Jean Brody, Um, which will actually wrap up this first part of uh, this second season. Um, That one will be out in a couple weeks time. And after that, we're going to have maybe like a couple week break over the holiday period just so that we can give our voices a break. Uh, Lori can mind her store during uh, the holiday rush and um, we can come back to y'all refreshed in the new year with, Yet more of uh, Muriel Spark, and yet more uh, backlist picks with some amazing booksellers, authors, what have you.
1: I'm looking forward to selling some Muriel Spark over the holidays. We've got some in the store, and I'm definitely hand selling it.
0: You should definitely give us a uh, a uh, a tally at the end uh, when we when we come back. We should hear how, how did the Muriel Spark go over? How many times you have to reorder? All those good things, and if. Uh, If it doesn't go well well we don't have to ever bring this part up again (laughs) but uh yeah so today we're talking about the bachelors uh this is a really weird novel (laughs) like this is um just very strange characters uh very strange circumstances running through it um incredibly funny uh spark has such a an amazing comic touch um and of course you know beautiful writing um amazing characterization just uh it's you know we're running out of uh, superlatives i think uh to apply to her work uh this one uh came out in 1960 uh much like uh, the ballad of uh peckham rye um so you know from the comforters to uh <laughs> this novel it's been what four years for her at this point four years and five books something like that um which is a mind boggling pace, but, um, Hey, she was, she was able to pull it off. I think.
1: Yeah. And so I think that at this point, you know, after reading our fifth work by her together, um, we can definitely come up with, you know, themes like Catholicism, um, stylistic, um, features such as, um, you know, dialogue-heavy narrative. But what's pretty remarkable that in such a condensed period of time, she's able to pull off um, five novels that are wholly distinct, um, That not only in terms of what happens, but, you know, she just seems to be able to come up with these character types. And we've must in the five novels now have encountered seventy five characters that she's presented to us, and this novel um has a lot of characters in it. there are a lot of bachelors um that we're <laughs> that were introduced to um in this novel, but each of them feels like a different unique person and i you don't really i don't feel like oh, here's her stock X character or her stock Y character. They all are so individually quirky um, that they really don't seem to overlap.
0: It's interesting that when you bring that up, because to create this many characters in in that period of time... kind of wonder a a little bit where the inspirations are coming from and is she drawing from some of the people in her life those sorts of things so I almost wish there was a uh maybe there is somewhere I'll have to take a look but a a, a dark back of time response to some of her novels where folks got a little their noses turned or or puffed themselves up with pride that they were the uh, model for uh, a certain character in in one of her novels um but yeah they're they are all distinct. They are fully realized characters. 75 sounds actually about right. And she's almost writing plays, right? With the amount of dialogue that's taking place here, with the range of characters, and everyone kind of having their own moment to have a bit of banter and a bit of back and forth.
1: I don't know this for a fact, but I would just bet that Muriel Spark had a very rich social life during this period of time.
0: Uh, I mean, she she had to have, right? I can't imagine... Well, I mean, that's that sort of the balancing act, right? How did where is she finding the time to get all this writing <laughs> done while also clearly uh en- engaging and interacting and going to cocktail parties and meeting people for coffee? I mean, she just has she has such a clear command of um the London of her time. Um and I think that's kind of what she's been doing in these novels is she's she's really Documenting and evoking uh, a period of time, and and really digging into how the social classes are flowing together, are interacting, are not interacting, what the thoughts of the day are, and how how kind of I don't know how kind of up for grabs things seem to be. Um, this novel focuses on a spiritualist circle, um, but when they kind of rattle off who's a part of the circle. It's a combination of the very wealthy, uh, right down to day laborers, um, or they're attempting to get a day laborer, but they couldn't quite find one at one point. Um, But a school teacher, uh, it it just, there's this unity via belief that kind of, I don't know, chafes against notions of uh, stratification in British society that I think are kind of at least in my mind, have come and baked in about this this time period, and perhaps quite quite incorrectly.
1: Yeah, I really love the way this this novel opens. It opens with two bachelors meeting on a street, uh, acquaintances of one another. And they're going, they're each doing their weekly grocery shopping, you know, they're bachelors, they live alone, they cook for themselves, and they're kind of swapping notes on how much did you pay for those frozen peas, you know, and where did you get those carrots and just kind of like really, <laughs> really everyday things. But what she kind of amplifies in this opening dialogue between these two bachelors is how bachelors, as in London at the time, as if you want to think of them as maybe a, a type of of class almost, or a set subset of the population, really had these kind of very regimented schedules, habits. They were kind of fixated in the way they did things, and they did things the same way all the time. Um, and they had, you know, their their own patterns that she kind of explores here to pretty funny effect
0: yeah um i can't help but read some or maybe all of the second paragraph because it's just it sets it up so perfectly uh in queen's gate kensington and harrington road the boltons holland park and in king's road chelsea and its backwaters the bachelors stirred between their sheets reached for their wound watches and with waking intelligences noted the time then, remembering it was Saturday morning, turned over on their pillows. But soon, since it was Saturday, most would be out on the streets shopping for their bacon and eggs, their week supplies of breakfast and occasional suppers. And these bachelors would set out early before a quarter past ten in order to avoid being jostled by the women, the legitimate shoppers. <laughs> like such a, it's, it sets the scene so amazingly. But I think also to your point about like routine and ritual, the wound watches bit. I mean, at this time there are no quartz driven watches. They're all automatic, manual, what have you. So they or wound. And so all these men, the last thing they did before they went to bed, or one of the last things they did was they stood there or sat there and they wound their watch so that it would be at the right time in the morning. And so like but That's just part of their everyday life. That's part of their everyday routine because they have to maintain those routines because they are bachelors, because there is no one else to make sure the watch is wound, make sure that the shopping has been done. And it's, yeah, it's, it's so, it's such a specific detail to throw in there, but it speaks volumes to, you know, how, how these lives are structured and are executed against.
1: Yeah, there's very little impromptu things happening in their lives. You know, they, they, know, they know what to expect. Um, they don't have the variables of, of children and wives and crazy things happening. They've got pretty standard jobs and they live in, you know, walk-ups or flats in the middle of the city. They have their usual drinking hole, their usual pub. But I guess um, that kind of leads to something kind of extraordinary, and that is kind of the where the movement in this novel comes from, is when you plop a medium down um, in the middle of this group of bachelors, what havoc can ensue.
0: As Laurie said, there are so many characters in this novel, and there are so many scenes that it would be a fool's errand for us to even really try and get into even a quarter of it, quite frankly. Like it's, it's, it's a lot. Uh, It's I think actually probably the slowest moving of her novels, at least uh, for me, that was my feeling. And I think it is because of the constant jostling of characters and the constant reorienting of, okay, who is this person? Right, right. That, you know, it's Tim this time and, and all, all those sorts of things. But to give a sense of what's taking place in this novel, um, there is this uh, spiritualist circle. Uh, their primary medium is a man named Patrick Seaton. We see him very like within the first chapter of the novel, w- without yet knowing his name or precisely uh, who he is, except that we do know that he is uh, about to appear in court uh, on charges of fraud. As we get further into it and further into this spiritual uh, spiritualist group. It basically comes out that there was a member of the group who uh, Patrick Seaton was spending a, quite a bit of time with, giving information um, to her. Her name's Frida, um, or is it Freda? It's F R E D E A. Um, I guess Freda. Freda is probably more accurate. Giving her information from uh, her husband from Beyond the Grave, and um, he stands accused of having taken a check of two thousand pounds. Uh, and basically stealing the money. Uh, there is a forged letter, or a letter that is asserted as a forgery, that uh, Patrick uh, supplies to to the police, uh, stating from Freda that uh, the money is a gift to him. But the concern over Patrick being arrested, be, being found guilty and sent to prison, and what that will do to as it turns out, a a large number of people, um, the spiritualist uh, circle, um, his seemingly girlfriend. It's a little unclear. I mean, they are together, but he clearly would rather his relationship with Alice. We should probably touch on a little bit. Um, but um, she's pregnant. Um, so obviously she has a concern about him going away. And then all these bachelors, um, not most of whom are not even members of the spiritual circle, are brought into uh, the orbit of Patrick's uh, case and its consequences and its consequences for, for their own lives. Uh, it's, it's really something.
1: Well, it's clear pretty early on that Patrick Seton, the medium, has this kind of, I don't know, magnetic pull when it comes to women. He's apparently, we learn, well, he tells Alice that he's married. And that's why he cannot marry her in her um, compromised position, carrying his baby. And we find out that he's, he's allured and manipulated any number of women before we get to Alice. Um, his main benefactor or supporter um, is this widow named Marlene um, who kind of hosts the, uh, the spiritualism sessions where they, (laughs) this sounds so weird to me, they bind Patrick to a chair and he kind of goes into a trance and his eyes roll up in his head and he starts foaming at the mouth. And he presumably talks for or th- or through their deceased loved ones. In the case of Marlene and Freda Flower, it's their deceased husbands. And of course, you know, they're convinced that that he's legitimate because he's saying things that there's no way he could know otherwise unless he were talking to their husbands in the afterworld.
0: I find it interesting that he is alluring, and he does have this sort of effect on people. Um, and we just read a novel of hers with a similar character and Dougal. But Dougal, you, you could almost understand why he ha- was so magnetic. I mean he was he was a fast talker, he was interesting. He could you know wrong foot people well and then reorient them to what he wants, but he he was frenetic. Whereas Patrick is very much... I mean, he's described as being... He, he sounds like he's gaunt, practically. He's uh, he very
1: milquetoast.
0: Absolutely. And um, much older uh, than Alice. Alice is clearly suggested to be in her, like, at most early 20s. From the descriptions of his life that we get and just sort of his physical description, he sounds like he's probably at least 40 or so. And, and so, like, I, I just find... That's just kind of neat in a way I I just wanted to remark on that. Um, We have two such similar characters in Dougal and Patrick uh, that present in such wildly different ways. Um, Although when Patrick is on the stand uh, in his trial towards the end of the novel, um, he sounds completely different than he sounds uh, the rest of the time. So there may be a little bit of of masking uh, going on there.
1: A lot of the humor in the first part of the of the novel um, is M- Marlene because Marlene is trying to to form this coalition that will testify on Patrick's behalf um, during the trial. Um, basically the defense seems to be for Patrick that although he kind of admitted to the police, that he forged this, this letter and used the check from, um, Freda flower, uh, not for the purposes that she gave it to him, apparently, which was to invest, but you know, for, for his personal reasons or for purposes of, of the spiritualism movement. But that when he made that confession, he was still under a trance or he had so recently been in a trance that he was he was not yet out of the trance enough to really know what he was doing and so marlene is frantically trying to you know round up a number of people that were with or witnessed patrick um doing his medium thing and and can say that yes well anything that he would have said to the police that soon after um, having been in a trance is totally unreliable because he wasn't in control of what he was, of what he was saying. And one of the main people that she tries to, um, to get to testify in Patrick's defense is, I think, I think he's her nephew, Tim and Tim is a beneficiary that's been named in marlene's will so tim is a very very reluctant witness um does not really want to be involved he's a bachelor one of the bachelors he doesn't want to be involved in this at all and so she really tries constantly to strong arm him by threatening him with removing him from her will
0: (laughs) again we get uh the threats of uh Passing along of money, uh, being employed to keep the younger generation um, in line a bit more. Or, yeah, I mean, this definitely seems to be an aspect of uh, of this period, and and uh, something that is used for social pressure. I mean, it's not like that's not true still today. I don't think, but um, I think, I mean, I think on the point of the the trance and um, Patrick coming out of it, um, we should say something along the lines of it's asserted pretty clearly that Patrick does have powers of some sort. Whatever else is going on, whether whether he is engaging in some um, backrooms dealings to get more information about people, um, which he clearly is doing on some level, um, he certainly can access something else. Uh, And that is just sort of like, laid out a bit one person that he clearly i think i mean it's not fully stated but it seems to be the case um a doctor was brought to one of the uh seances and he patrick suggested there was something uh in the man's past a woman named gloria reaching out to him from beyond the grave which so scared him that whenever patrick comes by no matter how busy is the doctor will see him um and it's established that before he was married Freshly a doctor. He had an affair with this woman named Gloria who had multiple affairs, um, but she came pregnant and he performed the abortion, left the country, and she bled out the next day. And so, this is what he, the doctor does not want to be out there. And somehow or other, Patrick knows it. But again, it is almost too perfect that he, that Patrick would be able to hit upon this and be able to get access to someone who could help him the way he needs help. Specifically, he wants. Or he gets uh medication. I think it's actually <laughs> anti anti epileptic meds, uh, which allow him to go further into his trance state. Um, which is a really interesting thing because of the character named Ronald that we'll we'll get to in just a moment. Um but it's never stated that he did do any of this ba- like anything. Like he that he went through the records or he figured things out. And also this is an event from 27 years prior. How could he really dig that sort of information up? I mean, there had been a world war uh, in between. So it's, it's left up in the air, just how, how powerful Patrick actually is, but it is pretty well stated that he does have abilities of some, uh, abilities and, um, that 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 what they are doing in the spiritual circle isn't entirely uh, a fraud, which is an interesting approach, especially with how much how much spiritualism has been showing up in all of these novels to date. Um, before we got on and started recording, we were just remarking on what an amazing social circle Muriel Spark must have kept. Um, but I think it's a good bet that she... uh <laughs> that she definitely had more than a uh, passing familiarity uh, with with the spiritualists.
1: Yeah, and I think she was drinking buddies with a bunch of bachelors.
0: <laughs> I have, I would have to think so. Yes,
1: I, I think that um, that one of the things though to to think about with Patrick, he's a very enigmatic character um, because he's he's obviously manipulating a lot of people. And we learn that he's also a pretty effective blackmailer. So while there, while I got this same sense you did, Tom, that that there was there's something that's not that's not a hundred percent artificial about his abilities as a as a medium. Um, that that he's. He's also able to use information and obtain information in such a way that it that it would almost lead to some people. And, you know, depending on how naive they are about the way things work in the world, to think that he's he's kind of all knowing and has, you know, and has perhaps more powers than he actually does.
0: Right. I mean, he certainly feeds to both Marlene and Freda more than a bit of a line uh, when he's in his trance uh, and speaking on behalf of their husbands. He definitely puts in personal details that uh, convince them of the validity of what he's saying. But I mean, Marlene describes, is described as when her husband was alive, that they would have massive fights all over the world, that they'd be in hotel rooms and she would be standing there screaming at him, you know, hands flailing everywhere while he sat there glowering and making short, you know, curt, hard statements to her. Um, But when Patrick, uh, when she goes to her first uh, spiritualist meeting, and um, Patrick perf- goes into a trance. The husband is happy and he says that she should enjoy life. And, 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 you know, trust herself that she was always supposed to be a person who is in command and in charge. And now that he's gone, she needs to take on that role. And she's like, of course, that's exactly who I've always been. And I mean, it's wish. I mean, there's an element of wish fulfillment to it. But then there are all the details that convince her that this is this has to be her husband. And this is what he really thinks now that he's on the other side. It's a it's an interesting combination of, you know, maybe some research, uh, some cold reading, but then also again, you know, maybe something a little bit more on, on top of that too. Uh, it's such an ambivalent state that we're left in as readers as to how how true these powers really are or are not. That I think is not really the, the main thrust of the novel, but it, it definitely isn't. It's interesting for it to be left so open-ended, I find. Um, I'm not sure that that's, I mean, but that's, I was about to say i'm not sure that's been the case in the other novels but i mean it kind of is memento mori the phone calls are left very open-ended um elements of robinson are are similarly uh that way the comforters obviously has some incredible supernatural experiences in it it seems that spark really does want to put the supernatural at play in the reality of her character's lives um it's it's very it's a it's a very enjoyable it makes for a very enjoyable reading experience. I find.
1: I agree. We probably should talk about, you know, certainly Patrick Seaton is um, is one of the main characters in the book, but Ronald, one of the bachelors, is probably the other, and he's one of the guys that's grocery shopping on that op- in that opening scene that that we discussed. Ronald is well. He's a pretty unremarkable person, I think, throughout most of of the book. Um, he's not really into the spiritualism stuff. He's friends with most of the other bachelors. He, um... <laughs> and one kind of interesting aside about his character, he was involved with a woman named Hild- Hildegard, and... Um, she apparently wanted to take care of him and mother him too much. So they, they broke up because it just bothered him um, that she kind of was always doing everything for him, you know, kind of arranging their theater tickets and mending his shirts and, you know, doing all these things. And when it comes to another character that we haven't talked about much, but uh, a young woman named Elsie, who is best friends with Alice, the woman who's pregnant to Patrick Seaton, she would really like to have a relationship or at least a one-night stand with Ronald. And she makes it very clear to him that, that that's what she would like. And Ronald is just... Their interaction is so funny because he goes to her house and... And she says, "Well, you know, do you want to sleep with me? N- no, not really. Would you like to come visit me again? I really doubt that will happen. You know, he's 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 friendly to her, and even at even when he gets what he's come for, which is a a return of the letter that um was stolen from him. This is the forged letter, and Ronald it, it so happens is an expert in forgery and handwriting even after he has that and he's not really he doesn't need anything from elsie anymore they still have a very fine conversation but he's very he's very um i don't know disinterested and there are homosexual characters in this book but i didn't get the sense that ronald was one i don't know whether you did or not
0: um no i mean he does I mean, he does have relationships with with women. It seems um, he also uh, he does, however, see his friend Matthew's hair. Matthew um, is Irish, um, works for I think the the Irish Times or the Irish News, something like that. But has this uh, mop of uh, black curls on the top of his head that everyone seems to want to run their fingers through. And Ronald finds himself, you know, thinking to himself, well. Maybe there is such a thing as, you know, uh, unconscious homosexuality, or maybe you can respond to certain people a certain way sort of thing. Um, there is a whole spectrum of uh, sexual interests, uh, sexualities on display uh, just in The Bachelors. I mean, it's really... Elsie is someone who seems to be looking looking for love and connection, um, desperately wants to have a baby, desperately wants a man to be with her fully and and so far has been disappointed in every relationship, one night stand, longer term relationship she's had, something that Ronald um, in their conversation really does kind of warn her is going to be the case. Like this, this is pretty much was if you're if you're waiting for a man to be especially interesting, you're going to be waiting for for quite some time. But the other interesting parallel uh, between Ronald and Patrick is that Ronald uh, is epileptic. So Patrick is taking these anti-epileptic uh, meds to try and get deeper into his trance. Um, Ronald has them in order to um, hold off uh, a fit, a seizure. Um, the opening chapter where Ronald is out shopping and runs into his friend Martin, who is actually a prosecutor, and is the one that's going to prosecute the case against Patrick. Um, and it's just so neat how so these like just there's no reason for so many of these people to have any interaction with each other except that they all live in London. They all live in the same place, so they're never that far away from anyone else. There's all there's really only one person at most between characters who have never met each other may never actually interact in the novel, but you can almost see them like one leaving the 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 gentleman's club at the same time the other one comes in, sort of ships passing in the night. But on the point of Ronald being kind of, I don't know, not terribly interesting, I, I almost feel like that's a deliberate choice on his part because of his epilepsy. Um, he, w- he wanted to be a priest. He wanted to be any number of things, but he was advised that because of his condition, he really couldn't overexert himself. He couldn't be put into positions of, of power um the civil service was likely out and and that his mind his mind and his life could never be first rate because he's epileptic it seems in a way that he decided that if he can't be first rate then he'll just sort of drift but he also has this habit when he can't sleep of putting all of his acquaintances sort of on trial having conversations with them pushing and prodding getting a sense of how they what they would say how they would react um it's i mean he clearly has a really interesting mind but um has found himself in a place where he can't exercise it the way he wants to and since he can't exercise it the way he wants to he's just sort of not going to like he's just not going to do very much
1: one of my favorite personality traits about ronald is he's um he does let the epilepsy kind of dictate his life and his life choices and one of the things that he's particularly paranoid about is that the epilepsy is going to have some kind of effect on his memory and so he does all of these things like at, in this opening scene of the going grocery shopping that we've talked about, he tells Martin, you know, oh, I don't make a list. And, you know, Martin's like, well, that must mean that you've got like a really good memory. And anytime that someone tells Ronald that he's got a good memory, um, he kind of, it's, he, he he kind of like internally swells up with pride about this because he's, he's very much, concerned that because the epilepsy is something that is happening in his brain that that's going to that's going to um, debilitate him and debilitate his memory in some way
0: yeah he has conversations with the doctors about what this will mean in terms of uh, of his mind and the doctor um, makes the point of this the epilepsy affects your brain not your mind um, which that interesting dualism that's at play there that also kind of factors into I don't know the ambivalence about how how Patrick actually like works like how does he do his thing the the difference between laying out all the facts of a case versus the feel of it um this there's something really interesting going on in this novel in terms of what she might be approaching or or or, or assessing through the characters through through the setup, there is a scene at the end of the novel uh, during the trial where um, Ronald is laying out all the exhibits, and as he's saying, "An exhibit A, you can see this; and exhibit B, you see this," and the judge has to keep cutting in, saying, "Exhibit B is the uh, suggested for you know forgery, and Exhibit C is the sample handwriting," and, and like it's this very technical almost CSI sort of like, and this demonstrates this, and the O was started at the top on this one, but on the bottom of this one, and no one writes like that and on and on and on. And it's impossible to follow. Like it is scientific, it is factual, it is all these things, but it, it almost, I would have been lost if not for the judge chiming in every so often, let alone the jury, right? And I think that in a way that's sort of a a, a microcosm of a lot of what's happening in, in this novel, like you, or even our discussion of it, we could go through all the incidents in the novel and kind of suss out how they interplay and what they mean for this character or that character or what have you. But that doesn't give you the feel of the novel. The feel is generated by by the interactions, by our reading it, by, by how, how it's coming across to us. And... There's something of an argument for um heart over brain there, I think. That's or I guess to keep it consistent, mind over brain there. Um, I think.
1: Yeah, I that's that's really a, a nice way of putting it. You know, the tone of these novels is is at once serious, but really kind of infused with a lot of humor too i mean it's not it's not slapstick silly like a woodhouse or something like that you know like some british british writers um you know these are these are people that are going about their their lives and with whatever they're dealing with but the way that she interjects the humor and some of the things that they say, some of the situations, like in this one, um, there's a scene that goes on maybe for uh, five or six pages where Marlene is physically chasing Tim, trying to, I guess, wrestle him to to testify. And what what then is is quite so humorous is the next morning, the day of the trial. Tim has evaded her and and refused to testify. Marlene's packing a suitcase and she's getting the hell out of town because she's not going to testify <laughs> either. Um, and this is after she spent, you know, the first three quarters of the novel doing everything in her power to, to get people to support Patrick and to, to try to keep him out of jail. But, she gets spooked, I guess, or maybe she was never really serious about testifying in his favor in the first place. I'm not quite sure, but um, it's, it's things like that where she, she, she turns the character kind of inside out and you see that what you thought was, was their purpose, you know, and what their intentions were probably, probably is not the case.
0: I think what spooks Marlene. Is that no one else from uh, their circle will testify until you get uh, Father Socket, who isn't even a part of their circle. He's a rival, rival spiritualist, clearly engaging in all sorts of illegal activities. Um, but he shows up and is willing to testify, and uh, is coached to you know say what happened. And, and the thing is. Marlene knows what the sequence of events was. There was a seance at 11.30 in the morning. Patrick did go into a trance. He was taken to the police station at like noon, thereabouts. He may have still been in a little bit of a compromised state. That's all true. But the moment that Father Socket, who absolutely was not there, comes into the picture and is willing to give false testimony... And then she gets a call from Tim saying, by the way, what you're about to do is uh, really bad and could land you in prison. Once there were stakes for her, you know, that's when she picked up sticks and was was ready to. So I I don't think it's that she believes less in Patrick, but I think it's. um... (laughs) She doesn't believe in uh, spiritualism and Patrick's uh, ability and the need for his ability uh, at the risk of her own freedom, which I guess, fair enough, she isn't exactly the most pleasant character throughout the novel. She's very funny, and she's definitely a force of nature, but um, she's she's not the most fun person to be around, I don't think, for most of the characters. And
1: no, she seems to annoy pretty much everyone, and Patrick puts up with her, I think, because she's got some money, and she hosts all of the... All of the sessions uh, for him to do his thing. Um, Two things about Father Socket: one, it is with him that you, we get the the most clear idea that Patrick Seaton is blackmailing people because he's clearly blackmailing Father Socket, and that's why Father Socket, who is a rival, agrees to testify. The other thing about Father Socket is. He's got some well at least one interesting bedfellow um a guy named Mike garland, who is apparently at, at least when he's with father socket a crossdresser. um and there's i i feel in this novel more so than others there's a very um there's a very anti homosexual Vein running through it. And I'm not sure that I think that Muriel Spark is, is that's, that's reflecting her views. I think it's, to me, it feels more like she's reflecting the views of 1950s London at that
0: time. I I would agree with that. Um, Elsie specifically has a very visceral reaction to the idea of anyone who's gay. Um, she is, was connected with Father's Socket and then comes to his uh, apartment um, one day and Garland answers the door in a dressing gown with lipstick on his face. And she, she you know, decides that they're both gay and that that's the worst thing possible. And, uh, and yes, there's, there, there's a good bit more of biases and um, social hatreds on display in this novel than in some of the others, I think. Marlene has an interaction with Ronald where when it comes out that Ronald is uh, Roman Catholic, uh, without missing a beat, she says that she's anti-RC. I mean, that this has cropped up in some quieter ways, uh, a, a sentiment against Roman Catholicism within the society, but to have it so plainly and baldly stated is, I mean, plainly and baldly are basically the same word, but anyway, Tom, um, to have them have it so so stated is, I mean, it was jarring, quite frankly. Um, Ronald's response was amusing, and he has a range of responses that he's developed over the years. And and, I mean, in regards to Garland, uh, he is stated as, he's the only character in the novel that is outright stated as being homosexual. Um, He did time in prison for solicitation. When he gets out of prison is when he meets Socket um, and unlocks his clairvoyant powers, and again, this is a this is where it's suggested that there is something to that. He does spend a lot of time um, digging up dirt on people, but that's just to make sure that he can embellish things right. It is suggested that he does have a certain level of clairvoyance um, going on, uh, which, again, is just sort of <laughs> muddying the waters a little bit. But he finds acceptance in Socket and uh, a way of being in the world um, and acceptance of his own homosexuality
1: more on the secret life of patrick seaton um there's there's so many layers to this guy so we learn that you know he's been stealing money from he's got a history of stealing money from women um he's not married even though he tells alice that he is because he doesn't want to marry her and that whole vein of the story is interesting because when we get into Patrick's point of view, um, he feels that he needs to, to shed Alice, that he doesn't have any intention to marry her. He doesn't want to marry her. And while if you're in England and you want to get rid of someone or, or have excise someone from your life, you go to London and get lost in London because it's so big. But he makes the the distinction that if you are already in London and you meet that person in London, there's no way, there's no way that you can, can get rid of them. Um, And so then he kind of concocts a very sinister little plan with, with the doctor that, that he's blackmailing.
0: Yeah. It's, it's funny that, It's such a. It's true. It is a great way to get lost is to move to a city. But then in this novel, we're seeing so many people who have no relation to each other, all, all spiraling around each other, all orbiting each other, and in like celestial bodies. It's it's neat. Yeah. uh, So Alice is uh, on top of being pregnant, uh, diabetic, and has to take uh, insulin injections. Uh, And Patrick is. deceitful with the doctor as to how regular um, Alice is with her injections um, and starts asking for information about, well, what happens if she takes too much? What happens if she doesn't take enough? What about this? What about that? And kind of gained the full scope of what insulin or its lack thereof could uh, could do to her. Um, And then is inquiring from the doctor or demanding from the doctor access to the doctor's uh, Swiss chalet or Austrian chalet. Um, And that after the trial, once he's uh, acquitted, they'll go there for their honeymoon or for a holiday. And the doctor is not dumb and is figuring out that uh, there's a good chance that Patrick is going to try and use the insulin to kill her. And then as, as the novel progresses, and especially during the trial, Patrick is fantasizing about murdering Alice, about freeing her spirit from her body, this idea of Moving her into the air, into the spiritual, and how much better and cleaner that would be. But like, his mind takes this really sinister, uh, very, very dangerous turn. Um, it occurred to me uh, as you're saying that a thought I'd had as I was reading and you know 1st we were first kind of digging into Patrick. He kind of reminds me of as a, a version of another literary character from a novel that was published just five years previously. He has a little bit of Tom Ripley to him. Um, there's a bit of that physical description. There's the uh manipulation, the blackmail, uh, the ability to kind of really see into somebody and take advantage of what, what you know about them or what you're what kind of a reading you're getting. Um I don't know. I was wondering what 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 you think about. I mean, it would not be. I don't think it would be beyond spark to have read talented Mr. Ripley and be like, Ooh, I can have fun with that character as well and t- take a pass at it.
1: Well, I definitely think that Patrick does not have the physicality and attractiveness that, that Tom Ripley does at least as portrayed in the movie. Um, <laughs> um
0: in, in the novel, he's unremarkable. Oh really? Um, he's, okay. He's not terribly, mean, he's not bad looking. He's not especially good looking. He's the kind of person that can fade in and out. He is very good at working his way into people's lives. Um, but really the people that kind of want something like that, uh, someone like him around, um, there's not the same magnetic. He has a charm, but I don't know that the story I would describe as charisma. And certainly the uh, the Matt Damon um, Ripley has uh his share of uh, charisma in in that film.
1: I found the most fascinating thing about um, Patrick's plan to murder Alice is how he justifies it in his own head. And the way that he does that is he says that unlike the other women that I've been involved with, I never took any money from Alice. In fact, I've provided for Alice. I've given her things. I've I've provided for her. I've given her money. Um, so she's mine, for lack of a better term. And I think he might even say this directly. Like, I own her, I possess her. And and I know that she kind of wants me to kill her. Um, so that's why it's okay that I'm gonna kill her. It's a very um <laughs> And it, it's just an, an interesting dynamic that he feels, although apparently he didn't, doesn't feel owned by all the women who he stole off of or who have been supporting him financially, he feels that once he does that for the first time with a woman, that, that um, he has that kind of, of control over her life or death.
0: This was an acute throb of anticipatory pleasure at the mental vision of Alice crumpled up on the mountainside in Austria. She is mine. I haven't taken a penny from this one. I have given to this one. I can do what pleases me. I love this one. She has agreed to trust. Crumpled up on the mountainside in Austria, Alice, overloaded with insulin, far from help, beyond the reach of a doctor, beyond help. She has agreed to it, not in so many words. But up to this point, I feel like Patrick very much came across as... A fraud, uh, a swindler, perhaps a medium, but also someone who, who's employing other means to, to get his way, a manipulator. But and this is happens in the last about 50 pages of the novel that we get sort of this uh, portrait of Patrick's mind, Patrick's life. He is a dangerous person. Uh, he is very clearly a very dangerous um, being operating in the world.
1: The other interesting thing about the secret life of Patrick is that not only is he blackmailing people that have secrets, but he's also a police informant. Mm -hmm. Um, There's a detective named Ferguson um, who is one of the people investigating this forgery case against him. And we learn that they have a, you know, they have a history, these two, because... um, you know patrick has been um accused and convicted of other crimes and um he's gotten out of some sticky situations by offering to provide information um uh, to ferguson and in fact there's um there's some discussion that between patrick and ferguson that ferguson would really like to get the the goods on father socket and you know and maybe maybe patrick can exchange that information for not being um tried for this forgery of um of Freda Flower
0: yeah and i mean i think that goes to strengthen the idea that um patrick is employing some other means to learn about people to make sure he has the information he needs to get the reaction that he that he wants um, when he does go into his his trance states, or at least to influence whatever is whatever it is that is uh, that is happening in that state. Um, I was just thinking that it would be a lot of work, but it would be interesting to create a little um, little web of social interactions and see if we ever see if we ever get some crossover like we began to get with uh, Marius, with some of the characters showing up in other novels, but are we, are we going to see Ferguson um in the background of uh one of the other yeah i haven't noticed it yet i haven't noticed a a name crossover or or even like a a social situation where someone else could be but i don't know the the london sparks london is uh <laughs> pretty incestuous in terms of the characters and and who's who's hanging out with whom so it would not be would not be beyond her well at you all.
1: You be on the lookout for Ferguson. I'm going to be on the lookout for Matthew, the onion eater. Um, Matthew is one of the bachelors. And in order to kind of thwart his own sexual impulses, kind of self-sabotages by eating raw onions before he meets up with women. (laughs) And so the women that he meets up with, and in this case, Elsie, she tells him that you know, or ask him, have you been eating onions? Yeah, I can tell, but I don't mind. Um, so that's, that's kind of a, a pretty interesting personality quirk that um, I'm sure we'll spot if, if it, we come across it in some of the other novels.
0: Yeah, absolutely. But I mean, I think that also, <laughs> I'll, I'll, I think we did a nice job in this episode. I mean, we can, we should keep chatting as things come, as, as things occur to us, but um, I think we did a good job with what is a Herculean task of trying to encapsulate or really go, at, go into this novel. I mean, the number of, inter- number of characters, the number of interactions among those characters, what those interactions later revealed to mean. So in Elsie's case, the smell of the onions actually reminded her of her uncle. Who um, she was clearly ha- having sex with while underage, so it made her feel very strange and not very fond of Matthew after the fact. But in the moment, it made her feel comfortable, and it just like this is what Spark does. She pull she she is she's so good at not wasting a sentence or a moment to then build upon a character and build more and build more. And when she feels like she needs to interject something narratively, where it, when it isn't driven purely by the dialogue, um, she detonates so much of the dialogue that has taken place and what you think a character is or isn't, or what things meant or didn't mean to that person. Uh, it's just, it's really masterful and it's really, really uh, quite something.
1: Yeah, I maybe we're patting ourselves on the back uh, talking about what a good job we've done. Um,
0: I think it's fun. You can always <laughs> pat yourself on the back.
1: <laughs> oh, what a good job we've done talking about this novel. But um, it's fun to talk about. It's a fun novel to read, um, just like all the others that we've read so far. You know, it's a tiny little novel that you're thinking, wow, how is the effect of this novel so big in in so few pages and, and seemingly effortlessly. Like I, I never feel like Spark is trying. I never feel like she's, I never see the effort. I don't see the scaffolding of the work. um It's just, it's like, it's just rolling out of her in the most, effortless type of way Uh, you know i'm I'm sure that well i'm I'm guessing that's probably not the case but um the the ease with which you feel that these stories are being narrated and the characters being identified and and, and developed and and given these unique personalities it it's just it's pretty remarkable
0: yeah it's it's a very fun to spend this much time. I mean, we did in season one with Marius, but it's a very, this is a very different kind of writing. And um, it's, this is just such so much fun to spend time with someone so good at their craft. Um, and I'm very, very excited that next up we have The Prime, that we finally get to her most famous work, um, the only one that um either of us had read previously and and i have not yet read it so i'm uh i'm looking forward i'm looking forward to digging into that one
1: i don't recall any bachelors in that one but i might be wrong
0: well we'll 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 have to find out
1: all right thanks tom
0: thanks Lori.